So we're talking the Hegelian dialectic tonight. We are. This is an interesting one. Yeah, I was doing a little bit of research on this one. This one was a fun. You did uh, yeah. Tell me, tell me about spiral. this research because I was like, oh damn, he's doing research. Now I got to step it up. Oh, I got to no. sound like I know more. <laughs> and I was like, man, Brian, you're making me do. Brian's doing research. The world you're is. You're making ending. me do. You're making me do work for this. This is not supposed to be work. All work and no play makes Jack a dull <laughs> but boy. Yeah, but yeah, take me through it. <laughs> I dug in. I I did uh, ran on the old Google machine. Ooh, typed the old, in the old the old the old Google sphere. I I actually used a little bit of ChatGPT on this as well. You did not. Did you I really? Did. I actually did because uh, it actually gave me a couple of little little useful little tidbits there. We'll um, have to. I don't know. Expect a future Chat GPT episode. <laughs> some some Hal nine thousand. Oh, uh, don't don't yeah. even. But yeah, but yes. Yeah, Spill me yeah, with this um, research. So yeah, I was I was trying to find like good examples just to like because like I know like some elements of what the Hegel principle is. I'm definitely like I don't I don't think I know it as well as you do. You you definitely you came up with our material for this. Like I don't know it as well as you do. So I was like I need I need to brush up. I gotta sound I gotta sound like I'm smart. I sound like I'm smart for this guy, huh? <laughs> but don't um, don't. <laughs> yeah so i i I, th- I went back through my catalog as well i was like all right what do i got here that's that would apply to this so i looked up spike jones her i was like that one kind of does apply mm. a little bit i was like it's it's in a weirder way but i was like that's that's an i was like i'm gonna bring that up and see it see what you think of that no that definitely does because it's like he's not necessarily looking for a relationship he's coming into everything that's going on in the beginning of the story for her he is out yeah. of like a long-term relationship tech of this world is like taking off and a AI is becoming like a big thing. Mm-hmm. He just like falls in love over like a course of time with his phone's operating system, which is like a weird thing and a very Spike Jones type thing. But you, you could know. argue too, though, that like it's kind of happening today in some ways. I mean, yeah. look at no, I don't like I don't think anyone's necessarily gotten to virtual, you know, boyfriends, girlfriends, partners yet at least i don't think maybe there's something out there that's come along facebook has rogue ai going off writing code you know so who oh knows? man so skynet is real i always knew Becoming it coming a thing man we're getting there but, um, but yeah no, I, just, I thought that one was interesting what else did i look up i saw somebody wrote like an entire like essay on how because we, we've talked a couple times now about buddy cop movies and we how we yeah. both love buddy cop movies mm-hmm. i was like i read this entire like college level essay on beverly hills cop and how it relates to the hegelian dialectic <laughs> and i thought that was pretty interesting wait really the beverly hills cop which one the first one yeah the very first one about how like the whole beginning is like him going through and like being taken off the case and told not to go about it and then like he mm-hmm. goes and like i was in and i don't know how much i bought into this one as much because he kind of knows what he's doing all the way through it as far as i see it yeah so that one was a little looser for me yeah and i mean it's you know like anything you're always going to be able to find counter arguments to it things that don't quite add up 100 percent. because usually especially with like when you go to like philosophy or like narrative theory yeah people are adding the ideas after it's done it's almost like you know it's like the it's almost like a technical writing thing in the sense that like you're creating the instructions after you've already done it yeah so you kind of have to like i don't know if you're like me but sometimes like if i'm going through something and someone explains to me how did you do that i'm like i i i don't know i'll have to to go back and figure it out (laughs) because i'm you're just not you know like when you're when you're trying to get something to done you're not really making a conscious effort of every single little step that you're doing yeah no totally let's start at the beginning here yeah (laughs) it reminds me of that meme uh you tell the tell the end of the story and then periodically go (laughs) and go back just tell us what happened man (laughs) 
so tell me what happened. We're going to go back. Let's give a, just a small backstory here on the man himself, Mr. Hagel. Yeah, so so we got George Wilhelm Friedrich Hagel. That's his name. Great. Four, four, four names in one. Maybe we should bring that back, have like four, like a couple middle names there. Let's have a sense of honor, right? Like, <laughs> bring, grow up, people. <laughs> you need the fourth name just to, just, I, that could be a thing. Who knows? A, it kind of, like, it kind of reminds me of uh, when they read the will for Dumbledore in Harry Potter. Oh, yeah, and it's just going on and on. Yeah, yep. he's got like a million names. Same, same idea. So he was a German philosopher. We were talking, born around early 19th century. He was at, at a time when, especially in Europe, he grew up during the Napoleon Wars, and that's a huge, you know, historical societal shift in, in human history. And it's coming up too. Speaking of the Napoleon Wars, Ridley Scott's coming out with a big biopic on Napoleon starring Joaquin Phoenix. That should be a pretty interesting. Oh, that's right. That's right. That should be pretty good. Totally forgot about that until you mentioned it. There's going to be uh, some interesting material on that. But yeah, th- this would have been definitely an upheaval in the way the world works as compared to how it is today. Yeah. You know, there's a lot. In fact, you know, one of the reasons that Germany was great. Well, technically you wouldn't even have been Germany at the time. It was, it wasn't until after Napoleon comes through and creates the Rhine Confederation. Cause up until that point you had still the Holy Roman empire in what is day modern Germany, which there's always that famous thing where it's funny that it's called that cause it was neither Holy Roman nor an empire, but that's yeah. what history knows it as. All these German states, if you will, were all separate. Mm-hmm. Napoleon comes in, creates the Rhine Confederation and sort of creates the first thing that Tributes to that uniting mm-hmm. of different people sharing a common heritage. And they after they finally throw Napoleon out and the Napoleonic Wars are over, they're kind of like, oh, this this isn't bad. Let's kind of maybe keep this. Because at that time, it would have been Prussia yeah. that was, you know, the head or the recognized nation at the time. So this is the, sort of the world that Hegel is growing up in. So it's chaotic, definitely. One of his biggest things, or I should say, you know, when we're looking at the Hegelian dialectic here, a lot of people look at history as just a linear thing of events. Yeah. You go from A to A to B, one to two, and you just keep, the ball just keeps rolling down the hill or up the hill, whatever, whichever way. Off the wagon, on the wagon. Off the wagon, on the wagon, glass half full, empty, however you want to take it. But Hegel eventually argued that events didn't necessarily happen in that linear fashion, but rather as part of what he called an intelligible process moving towards a specific condition in okay. which what he thought that realization or that process, what it's going toward, civilization anyway, is this realization of complete human freedom. Whatever that is, is going to probably differ for everybody. Absolutely, yeah. But rather that history is built and molded and created, kind of like evolution, kind of like the way it's it's kind of messy. Mistakes happen, big events happen that just completely create like an offshoot that you wouldn't expect. So rather than it being on like a predestined line, you have different forces reacting to each other, and then yeah. that creates a new status quo. So you have like argument and counter argument. Two things come together to create something incredibly new and different. So rather than anyone who could say, yes, you can study history to help think about what's what the future can hold. But ultimately, there's that idea that no one has the magic crystal ball to see what's going to happen as you go forward. Yeah. And it's like as far as I was reading with it, too, it's like a lot of it is trying to understand the truth of the world. Yeah, absolutely. Trying to decode the universe and know, know, know the truth of reality. Definitely a philosophy, but it has has a huge, or at least it's influenced me a lot when it comes to writing. Yeah. For me, the biggest thing is the Hegel 
Hegelian dialectic is broken down into three essentially different parts. Yeah. The first one is he called thesis, and this represents the current state of matter, the, the first idea given in a formal statement that illustrates a point. So so basically like how, how information is pre- presented to, say, your main character, right? Yes, exactly. What, what the main character might believe, the world as they feel it is or see it up to the point when we pick up the process with them in the story. So it, whether that be 20 years into their life, two years into their life, 3,000 years into their life, whatever, how you know, whatever genre you're dealing with. It's it's the current status quo in, in the world of the story, usually shown through the eyes of your protagonist or main characters. The second point, the next one Hegel talked about was antithesis. And this is essentially the antimatter of the current world. Interesting that you use that word for one of my examples. <laughs> well, yeah, you got something. Go ahead. You're, 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 something's on your tongue. You're just itching to drop it. What is oh, I'm it? Itch- oh, I'm itching to drop it. You have no oh idea. Oh, my God. But you're, you're so unprofessional. This is one that I am very hesitant to give spoilers of. In fact, right, I'm very hesitant to reach this in a later episode. But I'll, I'll bite my tongue for now. Please keep going. Okay. But anyway, on antithesis, this is essentially the counter idea to thesis, and hence the name antithesis, or antithesis, as I've sometimes heard other people say. Either one. I'm fine with it. No, you had it right the first time. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you had it right. You had it right. All right. What? Okay, fine. I always think for me i don't know why but i think this in my head i guess maybe just because i grew up with it is toy story when i think of characters oh, okay and you think of the you think of the first one yeah. woody would represent the thesis he has the way things are done you know and you can see if you go back everything there is used to prop up his belief of the world he's andy's favorite toy he's in charge he's the one who sends out the army men he calls the meetings you know he's mm. the the grand poobah he's he's the big kahuna he's the king then literally <laughs> I'm Tito. I'm the king. <laughs> I'm Michael Jackson. You Tito. <laughs> then comes Buzz. There is literally the physical manifestation of the antithesis role. The villain, if you will, the antagonist. The antagonist in that story, and that's usually the idea is when you have, you talked about buddy cop movies. You could mm-hmm. argue Toy Story follows the same sort of thing as a buddy cop movie. Kind of does, yeah. Yeah. They, they kind of hate each other. Most buddy cop movies, like, they hate each other. Yeah. Mean. A lot of buddy cop movies run on like the romance tropes. Like mm-hmm. you're, you know, usually two people they meet, they're not, they don't like each other too much, or they completely hate each other, or something like that. That is the representation for Woody. Is here is this thing that is the complete opposite of his world. Here's a toy that doesn't know he's a toy. Not only is that frustrating because Woody is so used to being like, no, we're toys. We have a purpose. This is what we do. We're here to help Andy. For Buzz Lightyear, no, I'm a, I'm a space ranger. He and takes he's doing everything, everything seriously he can. to the letter yes. of the law. Yeah, and. This is like completely... What what is this? And you can even take the inverse too. Woody represents the antithesis to Buzz's thesis mm-hmm. idea, his outlook on the world. Yeah. So when you take the two of them together and you write that story of the original Toy Story, this is where the Hegelian dialectic says, we're not going to go back. In Woody's mind, he wants to get rid of Buzz and everything go back the way it was. Hence why he does the whole crime of knocking him out the window. Though he was trying to knock him onto the desk rather than out the window. At least I think. Isn't that how it works? Yeah, it was like he was just he trying to... To knock him behind the desk to like kind of take him out of the game of being taken yeah. to or to Pizza Planet. Yeah, Pizza Planet. Which I just got a shirt for Pizza Planet, by the way. Yes. And uh, I wish Pizza Planet were a real place. Dude, I'm like, a sucker don't for you? the merch. 
Oh, absolutely. I was almost like, I don't know if I should get this. I, I don't really need it. But then I was like, no, nah, I need it. Uh, you need it. Need I, it. I needed it. I needed it. Anyway, so for the two of them, when, when he does that, that's... Well, even before that, once Buzz arrives, there's really no going back to the way it was. Yeah. There's no that linear idea of like, okay, we're just going to point A to point B. It has to come through the conflict between Woody and Buzz. And through that, you get your final step in the Hegelian dialectic, which is synthesis. And this is something that is probably the whole key to the philosophy behind this, narratively speaking. The conflict results in a transformation. And we see a lot of this in like character arcs, how the world's, the changing of like how the world world could change for the character. Each side sifts out through the flaws to arrive at a new truth that they didn't realize was there before. Yeah. For Woody, you would say that, okay, he realizes that it's okay if he's not Andy's favorite toy or that he doesn't always have to be the, the main man. He realizes that and, ha- and creates that friendship with Buzz and also has a better relationship with all the other toys, except for maybe Mr. Potato Head. to the philosophical side of this, how like your self-view can manifest mm-hmm. itself into the world it's like take it from buzz's side of things it's like he fully believes he's a space ranger like a real space ranger in the real world then you take that final moment where he goes off on the rocket it's like that's his personal truth manifesting in the real world and he's like almost self-actualized as a real space ranger as much as a toy physically possibly could be like yeah. has real effect for the story and motivates the story for just by his personal truth no absolutely for buzz him and he's broken when he finds out that he's a toy he's like i'm an insignificant little toy woody has to come to the aid he has to lift up this person that he was trying to keep down for the matter of the entire movie because up until gone. that point oh god <laughs> No, it's all, it's gone. Bye-bye. Woo, see ya. What happened to you? (laughs) One minute you're defending the entire galaxy. galaxy. Then you find yourself sucking down Darjeeling with... Marie Antoinette and her little sisters. <laughs> I I have a life. I I don't I don't I don't I don't know what anyone's talking about. But what? what, what? <laughs> but that's essentially what I love about. I don't. know. This is one of the things that always pops in my head. This that's why I think the the original script is so good. Up until that point, even in when they're in Sid's room, Woody is still trying to like. He's like, ah, I can't show back up there without Buzz. But if I could find a way, like if he could still find a way to get back there without him and save face, he would still do. It. Up until the final moment when it's Buzz strapped to the rocket and he realizes that the only way they're going to get out of here now is he has to let go of that selfish idea of himself, that image that, you know, he has to have Andy all to himself and he has to be in charge. Yeah. By doing that, that creates that new idea. The two forces come together and you create something completely new that wasn't necessarily there before, or at least that the characters didn't realize. And I think this is why they actually do fly at the end, you know, because it's like we all just kind of accept it that Buzz flies at the very end for some weird reason, which if you ever had the Toy Story dolls and didn't try to do that. Things crash and burn, man. What are you doing with your life and why didn't you try that? You go try that. It will not work. Things were a lead brick, man. They sank like a stone. Yes, they sank big time. I tried so many times to get to recreate the scene. And there was a lot of throwing them at people when you were a kid. (laughs) Yes. And uh, a lot of of, uh, shame hitting uh, your friends and family. But there, oh, did you hit someone with it? Oh, no, I would never do that. (laughs) Um, Going back to the Hegelian dialectic, uh, you were saying? 
just that scene where they are flying at the end or lighting the rocket and they they manage to fly and land in the car safely as as fantastical as it is we seem to let it go because we're so enraptured by the characters and their story for me i've always looked at that as here is literally a new synthesis in this world that well buzz shouldn't be able to really fly but somehow maybe there was a truth that even we didn't recognize in the world or in nature for that sense and that's kind of the thematic thing behind it and and that's the the essence of the hegelian dialectic and it can be applied in a lot of ways the essence of chaos the essence of chaos absolutely how you apply this in storytelling is i think it it definitely deals heavily with theme so you got to be a little careful with that because i always try to like if i'm writing something i always try to make sure my themes are coming out naturally or like i don't want to force them into it because then you can run the risk of it coming off preachy or heavy-handed too obvious and predictable yeah way too obvious yeah sometimes it's more like work on the character figure out where they might end or figure out what the world might be after that another good example i think story-wise is midnight in paris one of my favorite woody allen oh, films yeah i think it just that one a while. It, no it's definitely a good one i i like it a lot you have owen wilson's character he if you've never seen the movie he's in you know, obviously he's in paris and he's a writer screenwriter but he wants to be it's, a more and it serious. just so happens to be midnight <laughs> and we all know what happens at midnight you, you Twinkies on your pizza. So yeah, you have you have Owen Wilson. He's in Paris and he wants to become a more serious novelist. For him, he looks at the past in rose-colored glasses. And that's kind of one of the things the Hegelian dialectic sort of argues against, that going back necessarily isn't the answer. We have to embrace the truth that was there through the, the messy chaos of, of life and just how things are. But for Owen's character, he wants to go to the 1920s, see, you know, the great writers like Fitzgerald, Hemingway. His idols. and yeah. Uh, Gertrude Stein, those members of that lost generation. That's what he does. He was never explained, which is fine. It's, you know, it's magical. He travels back in time to the 1920s. It's like somewhere thinking, between like a dream sequence and like an actual like shattered universe, kind of like traveling through time kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. His journey into this world thinks that this is going to fulfill him in some way. And he meets Marion Cotillard's character. They hit it off. But one of the twists is that she too is in the same boat as him but in her time and she wants to go back even farther into the past she thinks oh it was better i think it's like 50 years ago from when they are in the 1920s she wants to go see some of the philosophers in the 19th century it's almost like uh kind of how you like glory no matter what time you're in you glorify the past yes and he literally has this revelation he says "I'm, i'm having a breakthrough i think it's a minor one but it's still a breakthrough i think is like almost the quote that he says yes the present can be unfulfilling but we can't live in the past as much as we want to. And there's always going to be issues. Yeah. You know, using the Hegelian dialectic and the way the philosophy works, the pendulum, it almost acts like a pendulum. You swing from one side to the other until you find that middle ground. For storytelling, I think that really comes through with, especially your character's inner conflict or journey that you want to put them on. Mm -hmm. And I like, again, I go back to Toy Story. I think it's a great example. For me, it's just two easy, well, characters that I love and I can just picture them and how they first met and the differences. And through that, they create that new status quo, which then sets up the final bit to the Hegelian dialectic dialectic is that synthesis, that new status quo becomes the thesis for the next go through, for the next antithesis into the second one with Woody now questioning how much value does he have left when he first gets damaged for the first time. Here I can snag a, can I snag a bit of pasta here? Yeah, go for it. All right. Today's menu is spaghetti a la sriracha with oh. breadcrumbs and Parmesan cheese. <laughs> 
This is, this uh-huh. is wildly off topic. I'm so sorry, but I just got a text <laughs> from a random number telling me that my wedding dress is ready. <laughs> <laughs> what? Wait. And it's a picture of this like crazy looking wedding dress. It says, hello, Fiona, wait a minute. your order is ready. <laughs> wait a minute. Okay, this is not staged at all. This, wait, wait, you have a wedding dress on? What is happening Apparently right my now? wedding dress is ready. <laughs> I'm, Where'd I'm you get it missing. from? Just what's, what's it look like? Uh, I don't, I'm I don't, gonna be the prettiest girl at the ball. I don't, I don't know if I want this. <laughs> what am I looking at here? What is this? Hello, Fiona. Your order. This has to be a. They must have. Someone had to be. What? <laughs> Hello, Fiona. Your order is already done. You can pick it up anytime today. I'll be waiting for you. Someone's <laughs> with me. Well, that or someone just, it looks like a legit number. It just looks like maybe someone accidentally yeah. put the wrong number One in. One number, number close. Yeah. Well. I don't know, man. I hope. I don't know. Fiona's going to have to need some, I don't know. She's not going to know her dress is Fiona's going to be late getting her dress because they didn't text the right person. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That's incredible. Anyway, we but yeah, that's yeah. Oh well, yeah. So yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Spaghetti a la sriracha, sriracha, as as some people say. Sriracha. No, I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, to perfection. Got me curious. What mm-hmm. kind of pasta? It is whole grain. Spaghetti, okay. Berea brand, just because that's the only one I can find. It's just got some tomato basil sauce, and then I put in some panko breadcrumbs, mix it in, give it gives it that crunch. You know what I mean? Gives it that just a, that, a little bit of the the, the that end. It, it's that antithesis, you know, like the thesis is the wet noodle, and then you throw in the crunch of the panko, and then you just get joy, right? You see what I'm saying? Yeah, like the just the the little bit, like enough to let you know that it's like good stuff. Yes. <laughs> Good luck with this one. <laughs> That's okay. Yes. Yeah, where should we? I kind of... I My example that I had mentioned before is that yeah. I, I was going to bring up... I don't want to spoil it because it's like a heavily spoilable content, but at the same time, it is my all-time favorite. So I want to talk yeah, about it, but I don't want to blow it for anybody. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I know I've talked to you about this one before, but uh, the Netflix series Dark yes. follows this every single characters storyline and there are quite a few characters in the series which makes it um, when i started like cracking open the onion of this particularly in relation to uh, dark i was like oh this fits every single character in that yeah. series which is kind of nuts <laughs> like getting getting out of the broad strokes as much as i can mm-hmm. the the story of dark is basically a kidnapping story but told through the framework of time travel so no matter how good the detectives are working this case, yeah. they can't can't crack this because it just it literally defies the laws of physics. Yeah, it's on. just something that's well out of their control. So every single character thinks that they can outsmart the situation and are trying to get around what's going on and fix it. Don't know the full scope and scale of what's going on, and they eventually realize that they're only really contributing. <laughs> to what's occurring through the process of their journey, which I've, I've found very interesting about that show. No, and, that, and that's a, I like the creative way that it tackles the time travel aspect to it. The, you know, it treats it in a different light. I don't know if you've also ever seen, have you ever seen the, I think it's, 
It's an it's an, a slightly older movie. It's called Time Crimes, but it follows a lot of the same. I've not seen principles. Time Crimes. No. Um, so yeah, it's kind of it's that causal determinism. It's it's where mm-hmm. you know everything you do is leading towards the circumstances that you do. This, it's basically keeping you in a in a solid loop. Yeah. Opposed to you know like the Back to the Future sense or you know any really any other that deals kind of in in the multi more multiverse side of things where you can like drop a stone and alter the alter the effects of things. Not necessarily like it'll affect your particular timeline, but in some sense, like you can alter the effects of what's going on. There's a couple like without getting too far down the rabbit hole of time travel, which I could talk about for hours and hours and hours. um, (laughs) There's basically two schools of thought. There's there's causal determinism or there's the multiverse theory. Basically, either Mm -hmm. you you are trapped in an ever effervescent cycle of the same things happening the same way that they always have. Or there's the multiverse, in which case you can kind of fracture the timeline and yeah and would, not. would you say and without without again without getting too spoiler heavy would you say the characters that's that's definitely something they're struggling with or when they start to develop learn more about what's going on this idea of like caught in that that loop that you were saying yeah and it yeah like not getting too spoiler with it because i do want people to out and watch the show this is almost it's like t- it's, yeah it's tough to I, talk I, about yeah <laughs> i do want to do a full analysis of the show at some point so i'm kind of conditioning our audience to watch it because it's a great show but um, no definitely yeah so i I would kind of say there's a tragedy element to it which you know characters kind of come to realize that their actions you know not every single character but you know a lot of a lot of the main cast of characters come to realize that their actions are contributing to the things that they were trying to prevent yeah i think that that's a case with some some of the more interesting examples of this it's like i think to some degree i was trying to figure out like a through line for breaking bad as well because i kind of i initially i was like it has to be but it's like not through uh, heisenberg or walter's character it's a lot yeah. of the other characters that it fits into but not him yeah and sometimes too you can have the like if you look at like and this deals more with characters you can have like a dynamic character or you can have like a static one yep. i mean these are just some of the terms i use like if we use woody like maybe in some of the more final episodes of the series where he starts to realize the ramifications of his actions but like through the bulk yeah. of the series he doesn't he's like a stone falling through this river of that yeah. that storyline just kind of just wrecking everything in his path no and that's definitely i think a big thing that uh, this this philosophy can help with when you're telling stories is that it stresses the need for some whether you call it the antithesis or the antagonist there has to be some force that rises against usually your main character your your main idea for the story yeah. and that the the answer the the truth lies in the middle and it's it's a it's a messy approach it's just a way of saying that your antagonist must be as valid and flawed as your protagonist it's just making sure that hey remember that the conflict in your story has to come from somewhere and i think i think there's a lot to that with making crafting a good antagonist because Mm -hmm. writers want to often arm and make a formidable threat for the protagonist with their antagonist doesn't always come out to being a very believable or logical character because they're just too overpowered yeah too it's, threatening or yeah, exactly it does you don't really buy that they're a person they're just this omnipotent threat you almost have to always look at it as okay what can the protagonist learn from the antagonist or how can the antagonist depending on what story you're making i mean all these rules are not you know 100 set, set in stone it all comes down to what story you want to tell in small instances have your antagonist be right where your protagonist is wrong 
Yeah, yeah, you can do that. It's always like, what can your protagonist learn from the other characters in the story? It, you could say, like, even I'd take a very simple example. You look at Die Hard. Mm -hmm. The one thing John McClane learns from Hans Gruber is to appreciate the things he has in his life, such as his family, his wife. Because when they come in there, they're on the rocks. Their marriage is on the rocks. And this horrible event helps him realize what how big of an ass he's been to her over the past few months. It's not that necessarily that Hans Gruber taught him that, but that event led by the antagonist of Die Hard caused it to happen and kind of allowed you allow your protagonist that room to grow, but create a sort of validity in the opposing force that they might meet. Don't just always treat them as a complete evil that's just one dimensional. Another another example too that I was thinking of I know one that you've seen also is uh HBO's uh, Chernobyl by Craig Mazin. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so much of the scenario that they're trying, they're literally being detectives trying to figure out how this could have happened. Mm -hmm. By design, the whole scenario is being kept from them because the government doesn't know exactly why it failed, but they keep secrets on pretty much everything. And it's those secrets that are ultimately causing the problem. No, absolutely. I think, too, that, again, not to, we'll say, you know, stay out of the spoiler zone in case anyone's never seen it, but that all sort of comes to a head in one of the later episodes in the series in the courtroom scene where he goes courtroom through. Scene is phenomenal. No, yeah, I, I think so, too. The way it's like, and you, well, you would be more knowledgeable on this, like the way, I, there's something the way that that show is shot. I don't know if it's more the coloring that they did. For me, it kind of sits in the same stylings of a lot of Michael Crichton works kind of like you know yes sphere Jurassic Park you know yeah like it has it it kind of yes. reads and plays out like a report was yes like it, it does it absolutely of script, yeah like it was like it was written off of like transcript of either like you know courtroom yeah. narration or like you know yeah like it a almost report of some kind it almost has that, like, I, I don't know if sterile is the right word I want to use, the way it's presented, but it keeps it... But it's it, fitting. Yeah, no, it works incredibly well. You feel like you're there, and, like, the soundtrack, the music to it is haunting, to say the least. And uh, the, the scoring artist who did that, Hildur Guadnadir, she, first woman to ever win for a composing Oscar, and she... This was one of her first big works, like obviously not her first, but came out the following year after this came out, I think, with the Joker score. She kind of became oh, was a okay. for a second. She's very talented. I really her original instrument is the cello, and it shows a lot in her work. Okay, here's an here's another one. I'm I'm bringing I'm bringing in an old an oldie, but a good bring in the old. This this, this one's an oldie. It's where, where I come from. I come from. <laughs> so, are you familiar with Fern Gully? I love Fern Gully. Yes. Okay. That's one that got, I, I don't know, I used to watch that so many times when one I was the, little. One of the several VHS tapes my family, like, burned out a copy of. Yes, and rightfully so, because it was watched multiple times. This, to me, I think, again, hinges on that same idea of you have thesis and antithesis, both with the characters. You have our main character, Krista, the rainforest fairy, elf, however, whatever you want to. Yeah, fairy. Do they say fairy? See, now my memory's starting to go on me. Do they use that? Term, I don't like, remember. Uh, yeah, figures, we'll have to. 
I'll have to look into that. You have her and you have this notion of wanting to protect the forest, the the rainforest, but also she has that need to want to explore and see other things. And that changes when she meets Zack, the one human. She's still coming into her powers. She doesn't always know how to make them work. He represents that antithesis, that human world. Now, you do get the kind of the best of both because you do have the evil villain in Hexus, voiced by Tim one Curry. One of the great Tim Curry performances. Yes, I think it's an underrated one that gets lost in the shuffle. That The animation and his voice, I think, just goes so well with that character. A lot of nightmares as a kid attributed to the sequence. Yeah, he's one of those where I would say, and I attribute this to both that the animation style and Tim Curry's performance, where he knows what he is. He is a force of nature, and he's doing what he was created to do, and he loves it. Yeah. Up until the very last shot, I would argue, and I'm getting a little off track here, but I would argue even from him, there is still that sense of there is some validity or, or humanity or complexity in your characters. Because if you go back to that very last shot of him when the tree, oh, spoilers, when the tree is closing in on him, the first time I think in his whole existence, if you look at his eyes, it looks like he's afraid for the first time in his life. So he finally feels fear there at the very, very end. It's the last shot we see of him, but it's, I don't know how they did it when it comes to animation but they did it in my opinion like he does look like he's afraid for that last it's in such a second. golden age of 2d animation oh absolutely and that is no that not being one of the smaller ones amongst some seriously great ones so i think i may have to be uh giving that one a rewatch yeah no definitely that. give you it a rewatch sold it. you sold it real well <laughs> well yeah and it and it all comes down to and there's the bigger thing there where you have if you look exact character the human who gets shrunk accidentally krista doesn't know how to get him back to normal how great that a kids movie was talking about like drinking on the job yeah absolutely and of course one of the performances by robin williams is batty like you know another great like there's a great cast in there i think it's a it's a great movie that sometimes i don't know if it still has the staying power that it or if it is as beloved as i think it is but i I highly definitely recommend it because it almost is a story that can go beyond the page or the screen in the sense of how zach's character represents us literally the human world and how he's pretty much this is just a summer job for him he's just trying to make some extra money but he comes out of it changed his worldview is different now he says to the two uh, i forget the his other two co-workers who are running the leveler the big machine that cuts down all the trees i can't remember i can't remember what it was named either yeah he says guys things have got to change that's the same there there is that new idea of how it doesn't have to be one or the other it doesn't paint nature necessarily as not being scary too like zach when he first shrinks you know there's a lot of scary things he almost gets eaten by a giant lizard or drowned in mud trying to like tap in on that honey i shrunk the kids like yeah terrifying, like, like yeah like, nature in itself can be extremely unforgiving and scary as well so it, it's again it's trying to say who's going to win out and not win out but how is this going to play out in the sense of you have the the more industrial technological human world and you have the natural world and how the two can sort of come together to create once again that new notion of truth that synthesis from the two ideas opposed to each other rather than necessarily one triumphing over the next it really tries to go to a more complex when you're when you're building stories and characters like you want to look at it as that changing point you know that that trans- yeah. transitory period between character knows the version of the truth truth versus 
where they started. Yeah. And, and I think it goes to like history too. There's a lot of things, you know, that we can say, well, this was, these were terrible things in history. You know, if you go going back to how it start for Hegel in the Napoleonic Wars, but there's a lot of things that are still affect us from those days and how it happened. For example, Actually with the she, rise of the information age, I mean, you know, there's a lot of people go through transitory yeah. uh, changes of truth in the real world. <laughs> Um, well, 2001, that's another one. That's a, that's a huge one. And I was one. thinking about that too. When I saw it on, uh, on your list there, I was, I was thinking that was an interesting one because the main crew is not in hibernation, just a small cast of characters. So it doesn't yeah. give like, w like we, we were talking about this with five man band. There's not a lot of room for that kind of thing, but it's there, there's still some elements of that. Play. No, a hundred percent. And for, for that, like every time, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but pretty much every time there's chapter cut in 2001, we've made evolutionary leaps as, as a species from the dawn of man to, yeah. Very much so. Like that, that long stretching cut in time. Yeah. You know, we're, we're not seeing necessarily everything that Kubrick jumps a lot. At least there's a huge jump in scope and time from the dawn of man to the, the space age. But you see like how those two starkly contrasted. You have us as our wild ancestors sort of are uh, fighting over the water. It is the water they're fighting over, I think. And they bring the, the bones. They create the use of tools to give them an edge. It's like they're, they're fighting over territory. They're fighting over food and just like the general resources. Yeah. After the the monolith has appeared, then you have the next cut to the, you know, the space age, the machines, and you have this notion of two separate things, you know, also asking where are we going? How, where's the technological world now? You could argue Hal is painted as a more sinister character. I don't know if that's warranted Definitely. or not. Like, okay. Yeah. yeah we, I think we had talked too when we did our analysis episode on it. It's kind of the first iteration of the Kubrick stare, like that evil yeah. demonic look. And it's coming out of just a... Uh, a borderline inanimate object what's what's you know first instance of a sentient object yeah but it's it's that notion that you can't necessarily you can't go back you have to go forward mm -hmm. but that you don't just completely erase the past 100 percent. like i'm getting way outside of my knowledge here but like how certain things when when we hear people say like your your lizard brain for example i don't know if you, I, I hear that term a lot sometimes yeah i've heard that one too Essentially, like the you know the evolution of our brain, you don't get rid of certain things. You just try and adapt and add on to and create something new and different from how you needed it. And that's kind of one of the things. And I think that two thousand one sort of touches on. And, and then you have the the star child at the very end. This he's gone well into a beyond sense. And yeah, evolved it's like in, it's kind of like next... if you look at it from like point to point to point. It's they sent if just specifically from David's perspective, like he's sent yeah. out on the mission. That's he doesn't necessarily know what he's getting into, but he's looking at it from the framework very much of like the government standpoint. Mm -hmm. The antithesis is Hal taking over the ship and trying to redirect for his own purposes. Yeah. And they, they overcome Hal and he gets back on his journey. And the synthesis is that he makes contact with the monolith and is now serving the goals of the monolith, not necessarily filling his mission that he set out on, but he is fulfilling the mission that humankind was sent on by the monolith in the first place. Yeah. Like his personal mission 
is different than the mission he was sent on by the monolith as mankind. Like, yeah, it kind of no. it kind of works in two different ways, but in, in a yeah. very interesting way. You know, so if you look at like Legend of Korra, another good show. Because we had we had talked about Airbender here a few times. Yes, and the sequel series to that, which I think they're doing more now. I think they've started like a whole new studio based on the Airbender. They're, they're world. definitely planning an animated movie that's going to continue the story of the the core four. Nice. I, w- I will be looking forward to that. In Legend of Korra, if you've never seen the series before, though, it, once again, it comes down to treating the end. I, I would say a big thing when you're doing this, if you're going to use the Hegelian dialectic to help build your stories, is always keep focus on the antagonist and that they're not to be a throwaway idea. There should be some sense of, even if they're just a horrible person, there's got to be a little sense of victory. In how it all finally plays out, you can. If I go back to Fern Gully again with Hexus, yeah, he's a force of nature. He's a pretty foul character, but without him, Zach's character would not have learned what he needed to necessarily learn completely to then change his perception on protecting the natural world or finding a balance with it. So you can argue that the antagonistic force is there for a reason. And yes, it can sometimes be scary or even downright evil in our eyes. But there is a there is a greater truth necessarily waiting to be found through the struggle that it's going to bring. And that is something that in every season of Korra, if you look at how it ends, there's always a new status quo, a new balance that is created after every, you know, major villain for the season is, you know, had their say uh, or had their time on the stage if you will, and battled Korra. She now not only grows as a character, but the world grows too. There's there's a new way of doing things and looking at it. And it, it just keeps that complexity of, yes. You can even see you it could, too, just from like the, the way that the world building changed between yeah. Airbender, yeah. the new iteration of how they showed everything. It's like there there's a clear deviation between how the world was in that in the first iteration versus the second i think this is why i'm so excited to see some of the new stuff because i'd like to see where the world is will be going forward because you there is a huge leap in time and it, one thing i do like that they did after ending airbender they kept that natural progression of how the fire nation had industrialized they were the first to sort of truly industrialize in this world you showed that they showed too like like a lot of like small iterations of like trolleys and Yes. Different different types of vehicles slowly starting to make their way into the world. Like it's often, you know, being managed by bending and more primitive methods, but it was like people mm-hmm. were definitely getting clear ideas for how to move forward. And and I like how it mirrors our industrial revolution a little bit in the sense of that's like a watershed moment in humanity. Like once once that starts to happen, you just see how like like the human population just starts to just take off completely. Like it's like a whole different world after that point, too, for better and for worse. In Korra, they found a way to creatively say, okay, here's this world where the people can bend elements. How would they use that sense of machinery in the assembly line, automobiles, radio? How would that affect and change? change their world and how would the old sense ideas and, and bending rituals fit into that and it's great how like you know like the metal benders or of course the biggest thing in the first season and going forward is the bending tournaments the that Cora is so into like the it becomes a professional sport and i'm like see i i can see how that could happen in that world even though it does kind of mirror ours and you could say oh they're just pulling it from our world i can see how that would become a, a sport in this world especially when things become you know more readily available to people food isn't 
wasn't as hard to come by. Health is a little bit better. You go from that agrarian society that they were more so in Airbender to a more industrialized modern one, and you have the natural challenges and new things that come with it. And what I do kind of think is interesting, just on a structure point of how the dialectic works, is like it's it does it's it's kind of like a more complex way of things coming full circle. Mm-hmm, absolutely, there's a realization. At the same time, you still kind of, with the bitterness of the world, still can come to the same point that you were at with similar confidence, but, you know, more weight. Yeah. It all just looks at a more rounded, three-dimensional view of the world, not just, you know, that you want to write, but also the world you live in. Yeah. It's saying that everything That's what's has cool, its place. That it's both a philosophical standpoint and and kind of a writing. Yeah, and I, I love to use it as a writing tool, just as a way to make sure that it's a good measuring stick or like test. If you're saying, okay, if I have my main character, main characters, you know, you can sort of plot out. Okay, here's the beginning, here's the end, here's where I want to get to. What what has changed? What things are different from when we first meet our characters and, and the world and what they're going through to the end? And can I say the journey affects it that there was something to be had in the opposing trials and forces that they meet along the way is there something still left whether those forces you know you go back to the five-man band whether it's like one of the enemies becoming friends and joining them or whether it's just their way of seeing the world is kept if i if i go back to cora uh, the second season unalak's character of wanting to bring the spirits and humans back together of course you know he takes it too far he, their ideologies and that's what makes them the villain is they they, they see it in a way that they, they've become so blinded by what they want to do. They don't see that what they're doing is unbalanced. They think that, okay, their view is 100% better. There is no, in their mind, a, a villain will look at it as there is no process that needs to be done. It's just my view of the world needs to be imposed on it. Rather than there's no sense of compromising or bargaining or diplomacy or anything like that. It's it's 100 percent totalitarian for them. But at the end of the second season, Cora does see like maybe maybe it is better if the the spirits and us learn to live a little bit more balanced and together instead of living separately. And that completely changes the world of of, of Avatar and Airbender. And you can argue that the main villain of that season, Unalak, has a small victory, not the one he wanted, obviously necessarily, but still he can claim a little bit to say that he he definitely changed or played a part in the changing of that world Absolutely, yeah and and that's definitely i think if you're if you're going through a story you can use the hegelian dialectic again three parts you've got thesis antithesis and the two of them together when combined or you know when they butt heads they create synthesis which is the result of that conflict between them and it's a meshing a molding of them and it's just it's just a good way to test to see okay does my story have the depth that it ultimately needs and that or i want it to have not every story needs to be 2001 be a crazy fill philosophical yeah. journey journey that you go down as no, you know we don't know yeah not everything has to do that sometimes you know that's not what you're that's not what you're feeling for sometimes you know we want a burger sometimes we want popcorn sometimes we want five course dinners sometimes we want a candy bar sometimes i want to grow my own food <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I just want to sit here and eat some pasta. Some, some whole grain pasta at that. Some whole grain pasta, yes. You got to go with the whole grain. It's the only, it really is the only way. Mm-hmm. Solid pasta. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you there's many ways, but just, you you know you can have penne. You can have, you can have penne. <laughs> there are so many types of pasta. <laughs> I can't even I can't even keep track of them. But yes, I highly recommend using or at least you know reading up on this philosophy and how you can use it in your storytelling because I really do think it works. You know, like a stress test for your story is it showing the amount of depth and complexity that is appropriate for it, or that you as the author and writer creator would want it to have. Absolutely. I think it's a solid tool to keep in, you know, your toolbox and uh, have mm-hmm. it ready. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think with uh, the Hegelian dialectic, I think, you know, that's that's one thing people can use to just kind of, you know, flesh things out more and think maybe think a little deeper about, uh, you know, this, the scenarios, the plot structures of what uh, you're crafting and, you know, where you're taking your characters and how to move them through. Definitely. Worth, worth a shot. Give it a shot next time. Yeah. Go out there. Make yourself some grain pasta, you know, or some penne pasta, you know, whatever kind of pasta you want to make some yourself. Some silly pasta, or heck, maybe come up with your own pasta. You never know. Maybe, maybe something cool, you know, you've never heard of. <laughs> <laughs> something syn- syn- synthesize some new pasta for us, or antithesize. Oh my pasta. God! Go to bed. <laughs> Bye, Bye guys. <laughs>